praise God that in the, His glorious presence is fullness of joy, and at the Lord's right hand are pleasures forevermore. Even at God's right hand, our Lord Jesus seated there. Well, brothers and sisters, if you have a Bible, please turn with me one last time in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 24 this morning as we've been going through this series together over the last few months. Today's passage is Paul's conclusion, and it's his famous Armor of God passage. You'll see the title there, Strong in the Strength which God Supplies. That phrasing comes to us from uh, him in our hymnal, Soldiers of Christ Arise, which is a hymn based off of that Ephesians 6 Armor of God passage. Uh, if memory serves, this was the passage, the first passage I studied in depth uh, at church camp, at youth camp, the summer after I was converted. Uh, so the Armor of God passage has long been meaningful to me, and so I'm very glad to get to study it with you today. Well, we'll read the passage first, and then after reading it, we'll pray and ask for God's help and blessing. So let's look now to Ephesians 6, beginning at verse 10. This is God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. Take heed how you hear it. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us this day. Would you pray with me, friends? O Lord, your word is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. Would you again grant us, O Holy Spirit, illumination. Help us to understand all that we read this day. Work by your word in all our hearts to equip us to live for your glory now. For we do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have noticed there in verse 10, as we were reading through the passage there, Paul gives a general theme for this passage, a general heading, if you like. 
And from that theme, he extrapolates several different applications. It's his, as we approach verse 10 and really the, the, the whole of this short passage, this pericope, it's his, his climactic crescendo. It's his grand signing off as he's winding down this marvelous pastoral epistle. Finally, he says, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And he's about to tell us why we will need to be strong. But even as he gives that concluding command to be strong, we're not just left with a bare command. He gives that exhortation, he gives that instruction, but then he immediately tells how the Lord will provide us the resources to do the very thing that he has commanded. This is a habit of Paul's, and it's a habit of the Lord for that matter. But a textual pattern of Paul's that we've seen already in Ephesians as we've been studying through it these past few months. Just last chapter in chapter 5, a few weeks ago, when we were looking at the marriage passage, we saw that God not only commands obligations in marriage, but he fills us with his spirit so that we might fulfill the very obligations God has given us to obey. He commands, but then he supplies so that we might heed exactly as he commands. We see God's grace play out as he provides and makes provision and supplies his people for our needs. We see God's grace play out with respect to his commands for marriage, of course, but then we see it play out here in this text with respect to the reality of spiritual warfare. In our adult Sunday school a few weeks ago, we were thinking about the why, the how, and the when of worship. Well, today for our passage, I thought I would simply use similarly broad contours regarding spiritual warfare. The who, the where, the what, and the how. Who, who we combat in spiritual warfare. And then where, the location of the fight. And of course, the what. What are the tools at our disposal in spiritual warfare? And then, of course, the how. How will we keep enduring in this long, ongoing slog? So who, verses 10 and 11. Where, verse 12. What, verses 13 through 17. And then how, verses 18 through 24. That'll be the contours of our study of this passage this morning. So first, the who. The who, when we think about the reality of spiritual warfare. Let's think first about verses 10 and 11. Who are we fighting? Who is the enemy that we are up against. Now, to say that we are at war is an unpleasant thing to hear. Perhaps it's an unpleasant thing to accept. It's not positive, encouraging K-love, no. And if we downplay the seriousness of the reality of spiritual warfare, it helps no one and it accomplishes nothing at all. Many pastors have said it before, it's not unique to me, but far too many Christians, far too many of us, myself included, approach the Christian life expecting a cruise ship when, in fact, God has bid us to come on board a battleship. The fact is, we are at war. This has been the reality ever since the resurrection. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes, against the stratagems of the devil, the Apostle Paul is saying here. We do need to acknowledge the reality of spiritual warfare, but at the same time, we also need to make sure that our hostilities are targeted at the right enemy. Make sure we have the correct opponent in our scope. Years ago, I think it was the late 70s, maybe the early 80s, the military was doing some tests uh, on some of our major American cities to see how we were in terms of defense readiness. And in one exercise, they were firing dummy missiles on the capital of Texas, on Austin. 
to see how air defense systems would respond. Well, and I don't understand the intricacies of military computer coding, but apparently when they fired these dummy missiles, they punched in the letters AUS for Austin. Only problem was is they were supposed to type in AUSTX for Austin. And instead, the U.S. Navy had just deployed several dummy missiles on Australia. Well, alarms are blaring in Sydney and Canberra. The Pentagon is on the phone with the White House in Australia. And thankfully, the dummy missiles were terminated well over the ocean. And the whole thing was explained as a big misunderstanding. And the Prime Minister of Australia was assured that they were just dummy missiles anyway and that the United States had not decided to launch an unprovoked attack on the land down under. Make sure you've got the right enemy, the right target, in your crosshairs. We need to make sure we have the right enemy in our crosshairs as our target, the reality of spiritual warfare. See how Paul says? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Beginning of verse 12. Many, many Christians are aware that we are at war, spiritually speaking. But at the same time, many have gotten fixated on their neighbors or Washington, D.C., or other such cosmically low-level bureaucrats, and they've convinced themselves that that's our arch-nemesis, and consequently, and we've seen this throughout church history, we've confused a worldly enemy, and we have therefore proposed a very material and worldly solution. Actually, Paul says, brothers and sisters, don't kid yourselves. Your problem is way bigger than any potentate in Washington or Beijing or Moscow or Constantinople or anywhere. You're giving them too much credit. The reality is way worse than that. He says we wrestle against the rulers, the authorities, the spiritual powers of evil in the heavenly places. He's talking about satanic power. Dark and sinister, supernaturally wicked entities, the things of the demonic realm. It's a terrifying reality, and it is a reality, and Paul wants us to be on guard. And even as much as we take this with the utmost seriousness, at the same time, we are not to be overcome or undone with fear. Paul makes a number of connections between this section here in Ephesians and the opening section way back in Ephesians chapter 1, and this is one of them. As several commentaries have pointed out, the language that Paul uses to describe our spiritual enemy, he used that same language back in chapter 1, verse 21, to talk about the victory of King Jesus. Christ was raised from the dead... And he's seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. All things have been placed under his feet. So yes, be alert, brothers and sisters. We are at war. But realize that you can be bold to press on in your life and in spiritual combat because, if I can invoke the imagery of Revelation chapter 20, The enemy is bound. Christ is risen. And Satan gave it his best shot and he failed. Christ arose. Christ ascended. The gospel is being preached. Christ is reigning. He is building his church. He is furthering the boundaries of his kingdom as the gospel goes forward. The commanding general of our army, even King Jesus, has already triumphed and is triumphing. Our enemy is a defeated enemy. So be alert. And be aware, but also be realistic. Who is our spiritual enemy? That's the first thing for us to bear in mind. But secondly, and related to the first point of the who of spiritual warfare, now we look at the where. 
Where is the location of this battlefield? We wrestle spiritual forces of evil. We wrestle against principalities and powers. We wrestle against the demonic. Where? In the heavenly places. In the heavenly places there at the end of verse 12. That's another phrase that Paul used way back in Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 3, as he's opening with that, that, that paean of praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing. Where? In the heavenly places. So you see, two things are true at the same time according to the theology of Paul in the book of Ephesians. Two things are true. In Christ, you have been blessed with every blessing in the heavenly places. But also, in the heavenly places, that is a place of conflict. Both things are simultaneously factual. As one man put it, spiritual blessing and spiritual battle go together. Spiritual blessing and spiritual battle go together. This is the normal Christian life. To be united to Christ and to be in Christ is to be in a war zone. Close quote. We've, we've mentioned this already, that far too many Christians, far too many believers are surprised by this. They come looking for a cruise ship, and they find themselves conscripted onto a battleship. You may have heard it preached before. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus, and all of your problems will go away. When in reality, ever since I've come to Jesus, suddenly I have problems that I never even had before. Never even realized that I had them in the past. That is the reality. Facing sin and temptation that I didn't even know I was needing to face. Temptations that I didn't even know I was dealing with. Dark and powerful. Ferocious temptations. Battles and struggles with sin. And sometimes no one and nothing is is tempting a believer besides their own heart. And sometimes even when facing that temptation, they lose. And they give in. And they sin. And the struggle is hard. See, here's the thing. When you were outside of Christ... When you were an enemy of Christ, in a, sense, in a sense, you didn't matter to Satan. You were dead. You were at war with God. You were not reconciled to him. You were at war with God, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Who cares? But now you are, believer, you are in Christ. Now that you are in Christ, and you are united to him by faith, now you are a target. And Paul wants you to be ready. Because ordinarily, brothers and sisters, ordinarily, you will face supernatural spiritual opposition. That's another thing to remember here about the reality of spiritual warfare. This is an area where I think our our medieval ancestors may have been better at this than, than we are. Now, no question, they took some things to excess, but they were much more attuned to the reality of spiritual conflict manifesting itself in our lives. We have other Christian brothers and sisters today that are very aware of the reality of spiritual warfare. Now, again, they may take things to excess, but that is something we can think about, that we ought to be aware of the spiritual reality. Sometimes I fear that we can become a kind of soft deist or a soft rationalist. We assume that there's this invisible battle occurring between angels and demons, but that really that's, that's happening up in the cosmic invisible realms and it has no bearing, it has no impact on us. The Apostle Paul doesn't seem to think that. Notice how Paul moves directly into this discussion of spiritual warfare after he just got done talking about life in a household between servants and masters and after he just got done talking about children and parents and after he just got done talking about the relationship between husbands and wives. Do you see that? 
He talks about ordinary family life and social and household dynamics, and then he immediately goes in to talk about spiritual warfare. Isn't that where we see it? Where do you see your patience most tested but with your children and challenges with parenting, moms and dads? Where do you see the ugliness of your anger and your temper and your selfish nature rear up most than when you have a sharp disagreement with your spouse or children, when you have that sharp disagreement with your mom and dad? Husbands, the temptation to let your eye linger on those internet ads or wander to those sites. Wives, the temptation to yearn. Her husband seems to understand her. If only you were more like him. Parents, the temptation to confuse ourselves with God, hoping that we can micromanage every detail and facet of our children's lives and manage them into the kingdom of heaven, all the while unknowingly pushing them away. Or the flip side temptation of that, we are tempted to play it cool and aloof and indifferent. We don't speak up. We don't confront them where we should for fear that they won't like us or they won't befriend us. And therefore we neglect our shepherding duties to our children. Joining in on the workplace gossip lest we lose the camaraderie of our co-workers. Publicly griping about our husband or our wife because everyone else is. Cutting corners, fudging the numbers. Let's just get ahead a little bit. They won't care. They won't even notice. With the economy the way it is, we need every break we can get. Are these not the temptations that we face, friends? Paul says, don't for a moment think that these aren't the consequent result of spiritual warfare in the heavenly places. They are. We are at war. And the reality of battle taking place in the cosmic realms trickles into this lived reality of our world and it manifests itself in a thousand different mundane and unremarkable ways. That's why we need to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, as Paul says in verse 10. Because, as our Westminster Confession puts it in chapter 13, we are in a continual and irreconcilable war. The flesh, excuse me, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Now, strictly speaking, the confession is in that chapter talking about sanctification and our growth in godliness and our growth in holiness. But there is a sense in which that describes the Christian life until glory, a continual war, a continual struggle. And so the Apostle Paul wants us to be ready, to not be caught unaware, and to be duly and appropriately on guard. So that's the second thing for us to see, where, where the battle is. But then thirdly, the what. The what. What are the resources that we have? What can we use in this spiritual battle? And if you look at verses 14 through 17, they describe for us the armor of God. Right? Back in verse 11, we are exhorted to put on the whole armor of God. And then in verse 13, we are exhorted again. Take up the whole armor of God, therefore, so that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. There's a word there that it is our duty to take advantage of and to avail ourselves of all the resources that we have at our disposal. Sanctification is not an entirely passive thing. We, We talk about this all the time, isn't it? God sanctifies his people... And yet we have a duty to obey, do we not? Do we just lay about passively saying, sanctification will happen to me. I will grow in godliness. I will become more Christ-like if I think good thoughts 
and absorb it all by osmosis. No, we are to take up and put on the whole armor of God to avail ourselves of the resources. We, that's why we come to do the very things that we're doing today. We give ourselves over to prayer. We give ourselves over to study of the word. We give ourselves over to preaching. We come to the Lord's table to feast and take on the means of grace for the living of these days because we need it, because we need it. God sanctifies his people. He enables us that we may further and further and further obey him. If ye love me, Jesus says, keep my commandments. We grow in godliness. We grow in Christlikeness because God is at work in us to will and to work his good pleasure. And yet at the same time, it is not a call to passivity, is it? It is a call to action. It is a call to arms that Paul gives as he tells us to put on the whole armor of God, to avail ourselves of all the resources that God has put at our disposal to grow in grace and grow in him. Now, as Paul catalogs the the various resources, at least a portion of the various resources that we have at our disposal. He uses the analogy or the metaphor of a soldier's armor. And and many times we assume that Paul is using the armor of the Roman centurion as his basic template or his basic imagery. And, And maybe the apostle does have that in mind. But I also appreciated how many commentators pointed out that the apostle Paul knows his Old Testament. And he's surely thinking of Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17, where it says this, The Lord put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. That verse from Isaiah 59 is a description of God himself, Jehovah, who girds himself up for battle to fight, to go to war on behalf of his people. And of course, if you know Isaiah, which is so often beautifully called the fourth gospel because of how much it talks of our Savior Jesus, of it points to a coming Messiah. Isaiah goes on to describe this God who goes to battle for his people. It describes him as a redeemer who will come to Zion. Ultimately, you see, Isaiah is talking about the Lord Jesus who engaged in supernatural conflict with Satan and he triumphed and he secured our rescue. The armor of God that Paul describes is the armor that Jesus himself wore, if you like. King Jesus' resources for spiritual battle that he put on to conquer and uh, to take on conquest against Satan. A cosmic victory, a cosmic embarrassment, as Colossians 2 puts it, making open spoil of Satan's pathetic schemes. Those same resources for spiritual battle that King Jesus put on, he now shares those same resources with his people. And so the first item, the first resource in the catalog, in the the panoply of God, as the hymn writer puts it, is the belt of truth. Truthfulness. Being lovers of truth. To be truthful and sincere spiritually. To be truly dependent and have faith in Christ. That's what he's getting at there. As one man put it, we must be the real deal, not to trivialize it. We must truly know him. There must be in us, the people of God, spiritual authenticity. And then secondly, there's the breastplate of righteousness. Now, that that could be a reference to our righteousness, our, our obedience, our faithfulness. That language gets invoked many times in the Psalms. But even when David and even when the psalmist invoke that language, it usually has in mind at least the implication of an imputed righteousness or a righteousness that God has worked into his soul. 
pray. What kind of, I mean, ultimately, what kind of defense against the fiery darts and the wicked schemes of the evil one? What kind of defense is my righteousness? My righteousness crumbles under the scrutiny, under the piercing gaze of Almighty God. Friends, the reason Satan's attacks, the reason his accusations sting so much is because they're true. He, he hurls your sins in his face and he declares that you deserve death and hell, as Luther famously said. And we stand there saying, yes, it's true. It's true, all of it. All that you say, all those heinous things, accuser, all those things, Satan, I've done. False and full of sin I am. Mine is the sin. Mine is the sin. But thine the righteousness. As Luther loved to say, what we need is an alien righteousness. We need the righteousness of another to defend us against Satan's assaults. Our Savior's obedience and blood hides all transgressions from view. You know these words from Romans 8. That's why we love them so much. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. I love the old hymn line. Well may the accuser roar of ills that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. Jehovah knoweth none. Jehovah knoweth none. He's cast all our sins behind his back, separated us from them as far as east is from west. We must move on. The next thing there in verse 15, the next item in the catalog is the shoes. The shoes that are the readiness given for the gospel of peace. The gospel grants you, you see, both defensive and offensive resources. Do you see that? As one man pointed out there in verse 13, Paul is equipping us so that we may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. And then he begins to talk about our defenses. He talks about the protective armor breastplate of righteousness and so forth. But more than that, more than merely a defensive item, like shoes for our feet, he says put on readiness, put on an eagerness, put on a preparedness to tell the good news of salvation in God's Son. You've heard the expression that sometimes the best defense is a good offense. I wonder if that's something like what Paul is getting at here. God, in the gospel of his Son and by his Holy Spirit, equips us defensively for spiritual warfare, but also he says, be ready to advance. Be ready to march forward. Take this good news by which you were saved and in which you now stand, and you take it so that others may hear it and believe it too. You know, sometimes I think many times when we hear that language from Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus is talking to his disciples about prayer, we hear that language about the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Sometimes I think the image that a lot of us have in our mind is of this huddled, defensive, sort of crouching posture. The outside world is, is beating in on us, and, and we're huddled in together for defense, hoping that it doesn't bust through and that the church doesn't crumble underneath the pressures. But actually, the image that Jesus invokes there is quite the opposite. It's not the church that's huddled and crouching. It's the gates of hell that are huddled and crouching. It's Satan and his pathetic minions that are huddled and crouching. And the church is coming along with a gospel-preaching battering ram, beating down those gates. And Jesus says the gates of hell shall not prevail against the advance of the gospel. Those gates will give way. It is inevitable. Christ is victorious. 
And Christ will have ultimate triumph. We must move on to the next thing. In verse 16, he says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith by which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. The, the shield of faith. Don't you love Paul's imagery there? What, what a vivid picture of the accusations that Satan loves to hurl against you. Flaming, burning, searing, wounding, cutting darts, cutting you to the quick. Flaming darts which were designed in ancient warfare not only to injure one soldier, the soldier whom it struck, but also to catch things on fire that were surrounding him, hoping, hopefully, to engulf other soldiers and bring them down in flames. In other words, the goal behind Satan's fiery darts is to take you down and hopefully take down others around you as well when you fall. How can we resist such assault? Faith, Paul says, faith in Jesus Christ not, not faith the way our culture popularly understands it. Not some sort of spiritualized sentimentalism, not wishful thinking, no. But belief, a trust in a very real and very solid reality. Trusting to, clinging to Jesus Christ. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. A hope, a promise, a guarantee, a down payment of future reality, which does not disappoint. As one man said, there is more defense for your soul in one believing glance at Christ than all your best efforts and all your strongest resolutions to turn over a new leaf. Hide thyself in the cleft of the rock. Stay close to Jesus. Cling to him by faith. And then, verse 17, Paul says... We are to take the helmet of salvation. So more protective imagery here, more defensive items. Right? A shield to protect you against Satan's vicious attacks, and now a helmet to protect your head against his fatal blows. How do you do it? One commentator quoted the old Princeton professor, Charles Hodge. He says, That which adorns and protects the Christian, that which enables him to hold up his head with confidence and joy, is the great fact that he is saved. Quote, are you saved? Are you Christ's? Do you have ultimate and cosmic means of defense by putting on the helmet of salvation by faith in Christ? Are you safe in him? Because there is no other security for your soul but there. But then finally, there's the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. I read this observation over and over again while studying the only resource, notice, the only piece of equipment that is both offensive and defensive is the sword. Right? We, we tend to think of the sword as a weapon of offense, right? cutting and piercing, and it is. But it's also a kind of mini shield in its own right. The, the sword, you hold it up and it can take the blow from the enemy's strike. Jesus himself wields the sword of the word like this in his great spiritual battle against Satan during his own life. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus, he quotes from Deuteronomy, and he does that to push back satanic attack, to rebuke Satan's lies with the word of God. Defense against the enemy's wiles. But also, it, isn't, it is a weapon of offense. How do we advance? How do we press forward? How do we further the kingdom of God? Well, we, we sow the seed. We scatter it. We, the seed of the word of God. We proclaim Christ to the world. We preach Christ that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That's how the kingdom of Satan and that's how the gates of hell crumble. Surely no soldier charges headlong into battle without his weapon drawn and ready. 
Yet, at the risk of being overly cheesy, how many of us are doing precisely that? Plunged into battle, whether we like it or not, plunged into the reality of spiritual warfare, and yet we're going in without the word of God. Our Bibles lie dusty and unused. Our knowledge of the things of God shallow and poor. We, we know we need it as much as we need food each day to live. That's why it's called daily bread. Our souls need nourishment. And this is the means that God has provided for our good and protection and for the advancement of his kingdom. Take heed. As one man said, it is not safe. It is not safe to fight Christian warfare with a closed Bible. End quote. So the who and the where of spiritual warfare and the what of our combating in spiritual warfare and then finally and briefly how. How do we keep pressing on? We know what we need. We need the ingredients. But where do we get the spiritual strength to keep pressing on in the fight? Look at verses 18 down through the end there in verse 24. Two major reinforcements, if we can keep using that battle imagery. Prayer and people. Prayer is the focus there in verses 18, 19, and 20. Verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. All kinds of prayer, all the time, for all kinds of people. Pray always. But then verses 19 and 20, he gets more specific. Pray for all sorts of things and all sorts of people, but pray for me especially as I preach the gospel. So many of you pray for your preachers. You pray for your pastors. I know it because you tell me. One of you even texted me this morning, letting me know specifically how you were praying for me. Thank you. Please keep doing so. Pray for the preaching of the word as it happens in this congregation, that it would be faithful and deep and true, that it would be saturated with gospel, that it would be attended by God's favor and power. We don't do it because we like to hear ourselves talk. Maybe some do, somewhere out there in Christendom, yes. But we don't do it because we like to, put, to hear ourselves talk. The reason Reformed and Presbyterian churches put such an emphasis on preaching and sermons is not because we think we're wonderful, but because the Bible says we're supposed to. All over the New Testament, we are told that the preaching of the Scriptures is the primary, not the only, but the primary tool that the Lord utilizes for the good of souls So keep on praying for the preaching. And God is so often pleased to answer the cries of his people, isn't he? That's the other great resource that Paul mentions here. First prayer, or excuse me, first preaching and prayer, but also people. We pray for his help, he hears us, he answers us, and so often he, in order to encourage us and keep us going, he sends us people. He sends us brothers and sisters in the Lord fellow believers whom we need to encourage us. Here, Paul sends Tychicus to the Ephesians. That's why, verse 22, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. That's why we need each other, isn't it? How many times are you weary and worn out, spiritually speaking? How many times do you roll up in here on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening and you barely were able to get yourself out of bed mentally, emotionally, and spiritually, but you're here We're fresh from battle. The enemy seems to have gotten his claws into us, and we've failed again, and we are discouraged. We're bordering on despondent. And the Lord, in his kindness, sends you a fellow believer, someone to pray with you, someone to stand with you, someone to 
hold you up, maybe to weep with you and exhort you and help you keep going. I need you, and you need one another. And the Lord is pleased to provide grace for the fight in the fellowship of the saints. We are in a dread spiritual battle, friends, and we must be strong in the Lord and in his strength. But you see, Christ is already victorious. He's triumphed over the enemies. He's made a spectacle out of them. And he's given us the resources. He's given us the whole armor of God for us to press on until he comes again or until he calls us home. So let's avail ourselves of all his graces to us. We're in this together. Let's keep pressing on, brothers and sisters. Bless the Lord for his word to us today. Let's pray. Father, we do praise you for your word, and we pray that you would enable all of us to be strong in the strength which you supply. Seal your word to our hearts and be with us now as we come to your table, that you would visit us with much grace in our hour of need. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.